Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, we're going to have a fascinating scientific discussion about poop. And then without any intentions of irony at all, we'll look at the top five fast food hamburgers. We actually accept basically any type of sample. Um, it turns out that I guess poop is the uh, sexy thing to, to send on. Very interested in skin microbes, uh, oral microbes. Um, one of our uh, visiting scholars here is uh, Chris Calwart, who is the armpit uh, microbiome uh, guy who's working on armpit microbiome transplants. There is a reasonable suspicion uh, that if your immune system is not exposed to, say, the right suite of microbial life, uh, that perhaps it could set you on a trajectory for some of the different types of chronic ailments that have really been um, uh, gaining an incidence. You're at a family function surrounded by family. Why are you wearing jeans that you should have been wearing when you were 18? You know what these kind of contest they should have? They should have an eating contest followed immediately after by a swimming contest. Because you know how they used to always say, like, wait 30 minutes before going in the water? They should have yeah. an eating contest and then immediately a swimming contest and just see what happened. Well, you'd be in a protective space shuttle or something. Well, a space, space shuttle... shuttle underground? A, no, the space shuttle <laughs> does not go underground. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. There is a huge difference between how the five-year-old me and the 34-year-old me feels about the conversation that we're about to have. The five-year-old me just wants to laugh a little bit because we're going to be talking about poop and collecting poop from all over the world and what we can learn about poop. But the 34-year-old me really found out from talking to our first guest about just how important the microbial world is, how important these microscopic organisms that live inside of us and are all around us are to really our overall health. Because the more, the more I listen to him, it's just amazing that, that this is something that is so important to us, not just for our current health, but for also the future and the possibility of curing diseases that have had, had such a huge effect on us. It's just, it's amazing to me that there is so much to this and we, that I didn't know about it. This is Daniel McDonald, the scientific director of the American Gut Project. 
So the American Gut Project, how did you get involved with this, start this? How did it get going? That is a wonderful question. Uh, So I got involved in the American Gut Project as a graduate student at the University of Colorado in Boulder as part of the Interdisciplinary Quantitative Biology Program, uh, who are the founding members of the American Gut Project, had gotten together and thought, hey, this microbiome stuff is really fun, but it's it's very difficult to participate. And so they uh, brainstormed an idea about putting together a project that anybody could participate in, and they came up with the American Gut Project. Now, when you Google it, the first thing that kind of comes up is collecting poop. I mean, is that essentially what you guys are doing? Or is it much more than that? We actually accept basically any type of sample. Um, it turns out that I guess poop is the uh, sexy thing to, to send on. Um, the majority of your microbes uh, appear to reside in your large intestine. And so from a numbers perspective, you know, the, the human gastrointestinal tract has, has really taken a lot of the, or lower, lower gastrointestinal tract, I should say, has really taken a lot of the, uh, the focus um, of research that's ongoing. But we're very interested in skin microbes. Uh, oral microbes. Um, one of our uh, visiting scholars here at UC San Diego in the night lab is uh, Chris Cowart, who is the armpit uh, microbiome uh, guy who's working on armpit microbiome transplants. And he is definitely very interested in uh, skin microbes. And there's quite a bit of research, of course, going on in the oral cavity and how microbes, for instance, relate to uh, dental staining or uh, cavities um, or even uh, cardiovascular health, for example. Okay, let me get the childish question out of the way right now. This kind of sounds disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Uh, it's certainly not for everybody, I guess. Uh, though I have found it's very fun and entertaining to give talks right around lunchtime, uh, right before people are uh, right before people are eating. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, science science is dirty at times, um, and uh, the the fact is is that we don't have a really great idea of all of these organs organisms that live on and inside of us, um, despite the incredible medical advances that have happened over the last you know, many decades. And in order for us to get a better understanding of this microscopic life that is associated with humans and is absolutely instrumental for our health, you know, we really need to, to work with a very large number of people to just begin to learn about what's out there. When you talk about these microbes, I mean, the first thing that I kind of think of is like, ooh, get that off me, get that off me. But that's, we need these, right? Yes, yes, without a doubt. Um, There was a wonderful um, uh, kind of opinion, thought piece, perspective piece that was written by Jack Gilbert in Genome Biology a couple years ago um, about imagining what a world would be like without microscopic life. And he begins to go into a lot of, you know, hypothetical situations about the collapse of uh, ecosystems and food chains and, you know, things like the air that we breathe. Um, in the case of uh, in the case of humans, though, uh, for instance, uh, some of the microbes that live inside of you help to break down some of those uh, plant fibers that you're consuming and produce small molecules that our body does not know how to produce themselves. And some of those small molecules and short-chain fatty acids are uh, quite essential for the health of, say, the cells that line your gastrointestinal tract um, or other parts of your body. Um, So it does appear to be the case that your microbes really actually are quite important for, say, synthesizing vitamins um, or synthesizing some of these things that are food uh, for other cells that are in your body. Um, And uh, we don't understand 
uh, that well how, for example, um, things like antibiotics, which are very important for very specific situations, of course, how those disrupt um, your, uh, your microbiome and what type of impact it has on the types of proteins and small molecules and uh, other things that are, that are produced by your microbes, um, how, those, uh, uh, how those impact your microbial community in terms of what the ecosystem can actually produce. How do they get in us? Are they just on the food that we eat? Are we, we're not born with them, right? To the best of my knowledge, uh, the scientific community has not definitively established that there is a placental microbiome. Uh, so we believe at this point, uh, the scientific data, as, as I understand it, is pointing towards uh, infants are born uh, effectively approximately sterile and then there is exposure along the either the um uh, the birth canal uh, or say through a cesarean section then there might be a lot of initial exposure through skin microbes um that are uh that are on the mother or the doctors uh, that are handling the infant this is certainly an area that is getting quite a bit of uh um, intense uh, research focus though because you know those first couple of weeks of life those first few years of life is really when your immune system is getting trained and there is a reasonable suspicion uh, that if your immune system is not exposed to say the right suite of microbial life uh, that perhaps it could set you on a trajectory for some of the different types of chronic ailments that have really been um, uh, gaining an incidence in particular in countries like the united states over the last few decades when we talk about like antibiotics and you know you hear all these news stories this is overprescribed and i don't know if it is or not obviously but is that having a big effect on this on this microbial life it certainly has the potential to so you know the fda i think it was uh, last year or over a year ago or so um had uh indicated that there, you're supposed to no longer have antibiotics or specific types of antibiotics, for instance, in hand soap, um, because a lot of this stuff was just getting overused. A lot of the toothpaste that you buy, um, if you actually look at the active ingredients, will include things like triclosan, um, which is an antibiotic. And there, there's a lot of low-level exposure to antibiotics all over. And we might want to question whether that really is, it, it is, is a good thing. Because um, we uh, might be impacting some of the microbes that are actually beneficial for us uh, by having this um, routine exposure to uh, antibiotics uh, all around us. And of course, one of the largest um, uh, uses of antibiotics is actually not just for, say, the medical uh, industry, but actually in agriculture. So sub-therapeutic levels of antibiotics are commonly used to increase the, the mass of, um, say, cows and can actually increase the meat production. And this has been something that's been known for, for quite a long time. And so you can actually go into the lab and uh, if you introduce sub-therapeutic levels of antibiotics to mice, you can increase um, the, the development of uh, adipose tissue or, you know, actual fat, uh, fat pads and fat masses. Um, and some researchers, in particular um, uh, Marty Blazer's group, um, they have shown that um, you can actually do this uh, introduction of sub-therapeutic levels of antibiotics and you can increase the, the fat mass of the mice and you're also actually actually changing the microbiome. Is this something that we can fix pretty easily or have we done kind of irrevocable harm? Restoring ecosystems is, is I think, just a, a very difficult challenge. Uh, there's certainly quite a few examples of, uh, you know, countries around the world that have attempted to, for instance, introduce one organism to get rid of another organism, and then they have all kinds of different problems. 
problems. Um, but so the, the microbiome, uh, from, from a lot of our perspective, a lot of microbiome research is microbial ecology. Um, so we're really just applying principles of classical ecology, such as going out into a forest and counting up the different types of trees and plants and small animals that are there. We're applying those principles at a microscopic scale. And so when we talk about, say, a therapy, for example, a lot of times the type of therapy we might be talking about is can we introduce or can we remove very specific microbes from this ecosystem, and then also predict what is going to happen in the long term to that ecosystem. And of course, in the case of human health, can we predict what the health outcome is going to be? And um, so I, I really hope that this is the direction that we're able to, to achieve in the field. Um, but I also do want to caution that at least in macroscopic ecology, um, for instance, you know, trying to predict what happens when you reintroduce wolves into Yellowstone, um, humans have not always been so great yet at actually predicting what those long-term uh, outcomes of the ecosystem are. I mean, what, what, what can we essentially learn from, from studying poop? <laughs> i i know i tried to think of a smarter way to phrase that but i just couldn't i just couldn't yeah so one of the um, one of the central tenets of biology is the cataloging of life uh and this is you know a lot of the works that um you know people such as darwin or george wallace a lot of the naturalists the 17 1800 um one of the that was one of the big things that they did was just uncover what is out there uh, in the natural world and from this massive abundance of uh, observational data, they were then begin, be able to begin to form very rich and detailed hypotheses about how life works. Um, and this is also true, you know, in the case of, for instance, medicine. We can't go about um, treating humans if we don't have an understanding of human physiology. Um, there's quite a bit of stepping stones along the way. And I think that in many ways, a lot of microbiome research is really still in that position of we just have to understand what is out there. As we learn more about the microbes that are associated with humans, it will help to inform and provide a backdrop for very focused um, uh, hypotheses to test, which can in turn lead to um, the development of uh, very focused and specific uh, therapeutics uh, or ways in which we might be able to modulate the microbiome. What I can tell from you know, what it seems like from, for instance, right now, based off of cross-sectional data uh, in the American gut, is that people who eat a very large number of different types of plants have a very different microbiome. And so from this really m massive swath of cross-sectional data, where what I mean by that is we have a very large number of people with, say, just a single sample who have collected, uh, who have provided that sample, um, it appears as those people who eat a lot of plants have really different microbes. And that's actually really cool because it suggests that all the things that are, you know, mothers and parents have told us all our entire lives about eating uh, fruits and vegetables, you know, it, it, that seems like it might actually have an impact. We do not have the data to show right now that um, you can alter your microbiome by changing up the number of different types of plants that you eat. But it at least is a stepping stone for a hypothesis um, that we can test. And what's also very beautiful about this is if we can help to improve somebody's microbiome and potentially their health just by recommending that people eat more fruits and vegetables, it's a, it's a concept I think that a lot of people can, uh, can definitely get behind. And it's something, it's an idea that is already, um, I think, pretty well supported as a, as a healthier lifestyle. Have you been able to study, necessarily looking back, what we used to be like, like what our used what the microbiomes used to be like, what our poop, what our stuff like that used to be like, as opposed to what it is now? Is there a way to study that? 
Yes and yes and no. So there's a couple of different um, efforts that are underway, uh, kind of to that respect. So one is that we can um, uh, engage with remote populations of humans um, that have not, for instance, um, you know, moved into to major cities, and uh, populations that are uh, living you know, more traditional um, hunter-gatherer lifestyles, um, uh, for example, and, uh, you know, work with them to to collect uh, microbiome samples. Now, I don't want to say that those are ancient samples. However, there is reason to believe that those, uh, the microbiomes of those individuals are potentially more similar uh, to what the microbiomes of humans were, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, uh, when a lot of human society were living these types of, um, uh, in these types of lifestyles. There is um, some work going on as well, too, using uh, well-preserved copper lights. Um, So it turns out that some Vikings, they used peat bogs as latrines. So they just went, you know, to the bathroom in these bogs. Peat bogs do a very good job of preserving uh, fecal material. And so some researchers have been able to actually go and recover actual ancient poop because it has been very well preserved uh, and have begun to take a look at the types of microbes that are associated with that poop. Now, it's it's not um, exactly that easy, though, because it turns out that uh, DNA does degrade um, and ancient DNA work is very difficult, very time-consuming uh, um, uh, work to actually do in order to get viable DNA out to take a look at the types of microbes that might be present. So, so yes and no. I mean, any anything that we look at today can't be considered ancient because we're looking at it today. If it's coming out of a you know human in, in recent times, and then our ability to look at stuff that might be you know well preserved uh, from from ancient humans um, is marred with these uh, the complexity of actually just looking at really old DNA. Um, so we we can begin to get glimpses, perhaps, of what our microbiome might have used to have looked like. Um, but you know, we we have to to be very careful with the statements that are made um, about the organisms that are observed. When I know we talk about microbiomes in in the, in the plural sense, but is there any specific ones that kind of stand out that you guys have found that like, oh, this one does this, this one does that, this one is just fascinating, or anything like that? Uh, I think a lot of microbiomes are really fascinating. Uh, so there's been some really cool work. Uh, so individuals who have recurrent Clostridium difficile, um, which is a uh, typically a hospital-acquired infection um, and is one that kills about 30,000 people a year in the United States alone. Um, one of the uh, treatments, and this is under um, enforcement discretion from the FDA, um, and it's very being very actively studied by the American Gastroenterological Association, is called a fecal microbiome transplant. Uh, and so it turns out uh, for individuals who have recurrent clostridium difficile, um, one of the most effective ways uh, to to help those individuals recover is one of those effective treatments is to introduce um, fecal material from a healthy individual into the gastrointestinal tract of the individual who is sick. Um, the existing treatment modality here uh, typically is through um, the prescription of very heavy hardcore antibiotics and these individuals are typically taking them for a couple months at a time going to the bathroom upwards of 15 to 20 times a day in contrast um, fecal microbiome transplant is uh, something that people typically feel better in about 24 hours um, so the, the the recovery is quite incredible so what I find and, and the reason I wanted to talk about this though is that uh, from the perspective of just looking at the data 
um, the microbiomes of the individuals with recurrent Clostridium difficile, their gut microbiomes more closely resemble the microbiome of what you would find on your skin than what um, than what you would find in, say, a healthy adult. Um, by performing this fecal microbiome transplant procedure, you can actually alter the microbiome composition to go from something that looks like skin to something that looks like a normal, healthy human gut sample. And that's really quite incredible, um, in part because your skin and your large intestine are extremely different environments. For one, your skin is exposed to the outside world. There's quite a bit of temperature variation. Um, there's things like oxygen uh, in, in pretty high abundance uh, at the surface of your skin, whereas in your large intestine, the temperature is you know more or less the same uh, throughout the course of the day. There's really not any oxygen. Um, there's different pressures provided by the immune system, and the food that is there um, is really quite um, in, in contrast to your skin, um, quite abundant. There's a lot of stuff that's inside of you, and I think everybody knows this by going to the bathroom, of course. Uh, whereas on your skin, you know, there's not necessarily a huge amount of food that's just sitting there. So it's kind of like a desert. So these are two very, very, very different environments. Um, and by applying this procedure uh, in this very specific medical condition, um, we're actually able to restore um, the, the microbiome. And so we go from one very different microbial configuration that's potentially not that healthy it's one that is uh one that is presumably healthy um and it's a massive ecosystem change when you talk about that transplant but you're essentially taking somebody else's stuff and putting it in their body is that how they do that yes there's there's a there's a couple of different routes um i i want to absolutely stress that this is a medical procedure it is very dangerous and it should only be done um with a medical professional um, uh, and it, it, absolutely a medical procedure. And I stress this just because there, uh, there are unfortunately people who think that this is something that is, uh, can be done at home. Please do not do that. Uh, but the, the, the basic idea is, as you would imagine, you can take some, um, some fecal material from a healthy individual and, um, after appropriate screening and testing for different types of pathogens, um, or different types of viruses that you might not want to introduce into somebody, um, you can basically, uh, through, I believe it's, uh, I'm not going to remember the exact name of the instrument, but you can introduce it into the large intestine. And you also want to be very careful about that um, that introduction because you don't want to, for instance, uh, accidentally perforate um, the large intestinal wall. That would definitely be bad. Um, and I think how the exact location along the GI tract as to where you introduce the material um, is uh, an area of, of research. There's also um, some groups that are working on poop pills. And so these are this is fecal material that is actually put into a, a capsule that you swallow, a very secure capsule so that it does not open in your mouth, um, and one that is designed to make it past the uh, very low pH of your stomach and actually begin to um, open up down in your, I believe it's small intestine is, is, is where they're targeting. So there's a few different companies that are working on these different types of, um, of, of mechanisms for uh, introducing um, uh, fecal material in a safe and appropriate manner uh, into a um, targeted location in the uh, gastrointestinal tract, specifically for C. diff. Um, there has not been, there's actually a paper that came out, I think just this past week, uh, taking a look at the possibility of using uh, fecal microbiome transplants for mitigating obesity. Uh, and the paper basically came out and said that, no, we don't see any evidence of, uh, of an alteration in, in, in body mass, um, though we did see a signature change in the microbiome. Um, so there, 
this was a, an area that you know when when people first began to realize that it was very successful in in, um, in Clostridium difficile um, that there was a lot of interest in well can we use fecal microbiome transplants this really like shotgun approach uh, to to modify in the microbiome in other settings and and so far you know it's it's really 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 quite limited however the overall idea of can we modify the microbiome is still um, very interesting of course to pursue when we talk about that are they kind of the microbiomes are they constantly turning over and over inside of us or is one in there and it's with us for the entire time like the individual whatever i guess <laughs> yeah i think you know what i'm trying to ask yeah, you yeah. that's a wonderful question so one of the um uh so a lot of what I, what i do as a as a microbiome scientist i guess is um you know take a look at how groups of microbial communities compared to other groups. So for instance, let's say I took a lot of, uh, you know, fecal samples from individuals who all had um, recurrent Clostridium difficile. And then I took a lot of fecal samples from individuals who, for all intents and purposes, appear to be healthy. Um, you know, what we would do is that there's a whole lot of uh, molecular work that goes on in the lab. And our end product is a bunch of DNA sequencing. And the DNA that we sequence gives us an idea of the types of microbes that are in each sample. We then do a lot of uh, uh, mathematical work to summarize all of these data, and then we can apply a bunch of statistics. And we can ask, are the microbiomes of, say, the people with C. diff very different from the people who um, do not uh, have have C. diff? So a, a lot of what we ask when we ask these statistical questions, though, in many ways boil down to signal versus noise. So if I ask a very strong question, such as, is there a difference between people who take uh, who have taken antibiotics recently versus people who have not, we expect that there's going to be a strong effect there because we know that antibiotics are going to disrupt the microbial community. If I ask uh, perhaps a more subtle question, such as, is there a difference between the microbiomes of individuals who are you know male versus female? Um, there is a difference, but it's much, 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 much more subtle. Um, and so uh, the, the possibility of noise, of technical effects, of sampling variation uh, coming into play um, can, can certainly weigh in there. But one of the things that I think is most fascinating, though, and this goes back to your original question about, about age, is one of the strongest effects that we observe in the microbiome space, um, stronger than, for instance, antibiotic use, is the age of the individual. Um, infants look extremely different from people who are, say, in their teens, look extremely different from people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 15s and 60s. There is this very strong age gradient in the microbiome space, um, and it's... Uh, I believe it's, it's it's one of the strongest effects that has been observed, at least with the techniques that we're employing um, so far. So it really does seem like it ages with us. Yes. And we actually uh, recently published some work in uh, M Systems, uh, which is a journal that's part of the American Society for Microbial Ecology, um, where uh, some of our uh, some researchers that we work with, some collaborators here um, at UC San Diego, as well as the San Diego uh, or San Diego State University, uh, were able to predict the age of the individual just from the microbiome data alone. I kind of feel like now I have all these microbial friends inside of me, and I need to take care of them a little bit. It's like I got all these buddies that are just hanging around with me all the time. Um, this is last couple of questions that I had for you. I have one logistical question that I just can't get out of my head. What? Yeah. Like, did people? They just sent you? Like, how many samples did they send you? How'd they send it to you? <laughs> uh, so at this point, we've um, 
So it's a crowdsourced, the American God is a crowdsourced, crowdfunded project. Uh, so the way it works in a nutshell is um, somebody contributes uh, money to participate. We send them a sample. They can collect the sample, send it back to us. We do all the molecular work. We do all of the computational processing, and then we generate a, a summary, of an educational report of the types of things that we found um, in the sample. Um, so the reason uh, that we need to ask people to contribute money to the project is that this stuff is really, really, really expensive. Um, so to give you an idea, uh, and I don't know if these if these prices have changed at, at all, um, but a lot of what we do in the lab is something called polymerase chain reaction. It's this really fantastic procedure that resulted in uh, somebody getting the Nobel Prize back in the 80s, where you can magnify, like continuously, exponentially double the amount of DNA that's uh, in a sample. Um, but in order to perform polymerase chain reaction, we need water that is extremely pure, that is free of contaminants, that's free of different types of DNA. And last I checked, this water was something like $75 for a single fluid ounce. Um, just to give you an idea of some of the expense of some of the materials that we, that we need to use in the lab. Um, and we also don't have any formal funding in place as well, too, for this project. It is um, largely supported just by uh, members uh, of the general public who want to participate. We need to get into that water racket. That's, whew, <laughs> that's, that's better the than gold. Grade stuff. Uh, is, is quite impressive. I mean, some of the some of the instruments and machines that we have in the lab are absolutely astounding. Uh, we have one instrument called the Echo, which can move around nanoliters of uh, liquid just with little puffs of sound. Um, but uh, yeah, which, which continues to just blow my mind. Um, but at this point, we received around I think twenty seven or twenty five thousand uh, samples from people. Again, largely fecal. Um, but what we're doing right now is um, beginning to figure out how we can expand this project uh, well beyond uh, the borders of the United States. So at present, there really are no restrictions from where you can participate. However, um, one of the things we uh, observed early on in the project was that we had some interest from people in, for instance, Australia. And these individuals were spending $500 uh, to overnight samples um, to us through FedEx. And that was uh, very humbling, but also, you know, something that we wanted to find a better way to approach. And so we actually have a, um, uh, some collaborators down in Australia uh, where people can participate using domestic post just to ship the samples uh, within Australia um, to our collaborators at the University of Queensland. Uh, and those samples are then packed up and shipped up here to California. And so we're trying to figure out right now how to begin to replicate this infrastructure all over the world uh, so that um, anybody can easily participate. And there, one of the reasons I'm extremely excited about this is while age may be one of the strongest factors that we observe associated with microbial composition, it appears that population is also one of the strongest factors as well, too. And I think that this is quite important because if microbiome research is predominantly focused on individuals in North America, then we're doing a very bad job of understanding the nature of the microbiome associated with humans as a whole. And this could very heavily skew um, our uh, subsequent, for instance, uh, research into different types of treatments. Let's say on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the lowest, 10 being the highest, these microbiomes, where, in terms of how important they are to our health, where would you put them at? I'm not aware of a human that is alive that does not have microbes on or inside of them. So we're talking like a 10. Like we're not living without these things. 
I don't, I don't think it would be possible to get ethical approval to do that experiment. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that I, I would be shocked if somebody would be able to live a normal, healthy life um, and actually be able to successfully avoid having microbes on them all the time. Um, so, and, and, and this is based off of a few things. So just walking around outside, you're in constant exposure to different microbes. Um, so when the wind blows, for instance, there's microbes that are getting shed off of all the trees that are around you. And these are, you know, microbes that are, um, uh, in many cases, uh, heavily fit to, uh, to the environment of living on trees. Um, they microbes specialize, uh, dramatically. There's microbes in the soil. There's microbes on the walls. There's microbes everywhere. And we're in constant regular contact uh, with these microbes. So the only way that you could avoid them would be to live, uh, for instance, in a bubble. Uh, but then you still need to you know, eat food in order to survive. And so um, the reality is, is that the food that you're eating also has microbes on it. Um, and we actually have some projects here at UC San Diego, um, one in particular that I'm really excited about, uh, led by uh, Julia Geglitz, called Global Foodomics, where what we want to do is characterize the types of microbes that people are actually eating, as well as the small molecules associated with the foods that they're consuming. Um, so I, I think from a, a pragmatic standpoint, it would be extremely difficult because so you have to live in a bubble, and then you would have to eat sterilized food uh, in order to be able to, you know, just make it, you know, day to day to day. But in terms of, you know, what your actual impacts would be on your health, from what we've seen in mice, um, I think you would be able to potentially live, uh, at least for a little bit. Um, so in mice, um, one of the uh, wonderful model systems um, that is um, uh, that researchers can use to test out how the microbiome relates to at least mouse physiology is through these mice called notobiotic mice. So what they are are mice that are raised without any life on or inside of them. And the way this actually works is that uh, you can take a, uh, a late-term mouse and give them a C-section in sterile conditions. And the pup that is born um, does not have any life on or inside of them. And then you can raise those pups in positive pressure, sterile bubbles, uh, and then you can, you know, feed them and they live. And they have a variety of different, uh, different um, both behaviors as well as uh, some physiological differences, or not physiological differences, I should say. Um, there's a wide variety of differences associated with notobiotic mice. I'll just leave it at that. Um, but we can introduce uh, different types of defined microbial communities to these mice in order to see, you know, what happens. So with these mice, um, I can say that they definitely, you know, live a little bit and they don't have any life on or inside of them except for the life that we introduce. Uh, but the conditions by which they're living is is really uh, quite constrained. And I don't see how it would be practical to do that as a human. What, um, I mean, where, where does this ultimately go from here? Like what... Can we use this research to, I'll be dramatic, cure cancer or do anything like that? Where, what's the next steps? Like, where is this leading? This is very cutting-edge research. Uh, so actually, just to your point about cancer, for instance, um, there are very strong microbial signatures that have been observed associated with a variety of different types of cancers. There's been um, quite a few papers that have come out in um, the journal Science um, just over the last couple of years uh, talking about this specifically. And it certainly is a very exciting area of research. Um, one for um, – there has been a lot of evidence, uh, very specific 
poignant evidence as well, too, for certain types of microbes modulating some of the drugs um, that people consume, in particular things like chemotherapy drugs. Um, and so um, there are examples, for instance, of uh, um, some drugs getting deactivated or even activated, depending on the types of microbes that you have. There's also a reasonable suspicion that some microbes might actually help to promote tumor generis, uh, tumor genesis, so the actual um, the uh, the expansion and growth of the tumors themselves. And so then all of a sudden, um, uh, if that is definitively the case, um, then microbes or certain types of microbes might become a uh, target for therapy themselves. So I think within cancer, there's a lot of very exciting uh, potential directions um, to go in. Um, and it's really begun to, in, in the last couple of years, really picked up and become uh, to be a very exciting area of research. Um, I think uh, my hope is that where we can go in the future, though, is uh, begin to, uh, at a minimum, try to predict uh, the types of foods that people might want to eat in order to help to modulate their microbiome. There are some uh, some research out there that already is working in this direction um, where uh, there has been some success in, for example, um, predicting what the postprandial glucose response would be to different types of foods that an individual eats when you begin to take into account the um, their uh, their gut microbiome. So the postprandial glucose response, this is the, the spike in blood sugar um, that you get when you eat some food. So this is something that is very relevant for uh, individuals who need to be able to uh, monitor their blood sugar levels, such as individuals who are diabetic. Um, and so I think that there's going to be a lot of, hopefully a lot of very exciting advances in that direction of being able to predict uh, what type of uh, physiological response might happen to some food and also to help to guide people to what foods they might want to consume in order to avoid uh, a potentially uh, negative response, such as this postprandial glucose. Are you ready for the last two hard questions? But there's, these are like sure. hard, lighthearted hearted questions. <laughs> If there is someday a movie made about the American Gut Project and the work that you guys are doing, who is playing you in that movie? <laughs> I don't know. Are we talking like we talking like Tom Cruise type? We talking like more action type? What? Are, give me give me a hint of what type we're looking at. Uh, you know, I think it would be. Um, I think it'd be wonderful to see Bill Nye. Bill Nye is quite incredible. There you go. <laughs> and I, I, I definitely do not feel like I am a Bill Nye in any in any form or capacity. That is, you know, that's um, quite a um, quite an individual to live up to. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. This stuff is is, is really cool on the um, for the for the microbiome side of things because in order to to make progress in this field, it, it really is a blend of a very large number of different disciplines coming together. Since you get all of these samples. What is the funniest way to refer to poop? Hmm. I mean, we're constantly talking about poop in the lab. Um, I mean, sometimes when I go and, like, you know, meet people, like, a 30-second elevator pitch or whatever, and they ask you what you do, I sometimes just say I'm a poopologist or uh, a scatologist. That's that's all the questions that I got, man. Is there anything else that you kind of want to get out there, anything coming up or anything like that? So one of the things that I wanted to mention on our um, on the global expansion side of things uh, uh, as well too is that two things. So one is that uh, I'm very excited uh, that we are uh, through the Center for Microbiome Innovation here at UC San Diego, working with uh, Danone 
um, the massive, massive, massive yogurt company uh, to begin to uh, understand further about the relationship between uh, food and the microbiome. And in addition, uh, we're also working with them to help to grow the project uh, to become more international um, through a new effort called uh, the, the Microzetta Initiative. Uh, which is run here at UC San Diego. Uh, and then there's another project um, as well, too, uh, which, um, sorry, Today, our- sorry, I just spun up something, um, that, uh, uh, that this is also falling under the umbrella of, uh, with the known, um, called the Human Diets and Microbiome Initiative, uh, THDMI. So this is something that we actually announced, uh, I think about two or three weeks ago on World Microbiome Day. Um, and this is uh, being led by Danone, and we're working with them in collaboration. So I'm really quite excited about it um, going forward. And again, the, the, the big picture here is to be able to um, engage uh, with as many different people as, as we can and um, you know, work with people, one, to help to understand um, the nature of the microbiome across the human population, but also really to, uh, to help to educate people about what we think is a really, really important area of, of research and, um, in many ways, this uh, newly discovered um, organ of the human body. I want to thank Daniel McDonald so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him or learn more about the American Gut Project, how you can send in samples of your own, we have that information on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There we have linked to him and to more information about this project. There's also some information that's in the RSS feed on this podcast. Okay, so now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call. And I want to start off by airing a grievance against him and basically the whole world. Hello? I want to ask you, have you ever noticed that in TV shows and in movies that people wearing jeans don't have belts on? Have you ever noticed that? Uh, no, but I, I don't usually look at someone's waist at first, I guess. You don't notice that they don't have belts on. That has always just bothered me. Why don't they have belts on? I don't know. Probably because it's a TV show. They don't need belts. Why wouldn't they need belts on a TV but, show? Uh, th- this is actually an interesting point. I, I actually wanted to ask you this because I was out in public the other day and saw this. Are you trying to transition away feel? from just not saying you don't have an answer for the question? No, no, no. We, we can come back. My question goes along with this. And is I want your I want to know your opinion on men uh, who wear jeans that are too tight, and if you think men do that on purpose for for certain reasons, like you're just looking at that person and you go, "Wow, oh, those jeans are two sizes too small." Okay, the only way that I have a problem with it is if it's a heterosexual male, a specifically a heterosexual male who hasn't kind of realized that maybe he's put on some weight. So there's a certain age range that I have a problem with it. I only have a problem with it between the ages of 18 to 27, specifically with a heterosexual male. Like if if you're a homosexual man, you're probably trying to attract another homosexual man, then that's okay to wear tight jeans. If you're over the age of 27, then you've probably just put on some weight. And you're trying to save money, so I don't have a problem with it. So it's a very specific area that I have a problem with it. In my instance, I knew the person, and I may have said something, and they got really offended that I was implying that they were wearing these really tight jeans on purpose to attract attention. Hmm. How old are they? Am I, need spe- I the dick? No, I need specifics before I can answer. How old are they? 
between 35 and 45. It is a family member, uh, but a family member that I don't know that well. Um, uh, I mean, a heterosexual male, uh, recently divorced, has two daughters, younger yep. daughters. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. <laughs> he's, he's trying to impress other people with tight jeans. I don't think – look, okay, here's the question, though. Does he have a nice butt? Uh, um, well, speaking from uh, – <laughs> Just yes or no. Just say if he has a nice uh, butt or not. He He's in shape for being his age, yes. Okay. He's recently divorced. He's trying to put it out there. I have a problem with you trying to bring the man down. Don't turn around this around on me. Well, you're the one being the jerk. Like, the guy's recently divorced. He's probably trying to find himself a lady friend or a guy friend or whatever that he wants. And he's trying to put out – he's flaunting what he got. Why do, why do you have an issue with somebody showing it off? You're at a family function surrounded by family. Why are you wearing jeans – that you should have been wearing when you were 18. Maybe he's gone full lifestyle and all of his jeans are like that. How recently divorced? Two, three years. No, that's not acceptable, Dad. No, if we're talking like three to six months and he's just kind of like, I'm throwing it all out, starting over, then I could see (laughs) him, then I can give him a pass to have nothing but tight pants. Otherwise, no. No. Did he have a belt? No, of course he didn't have a That's... I actually, that's why I wanted to bring it up later on, but you started off with that question, so I was like, I have to bring it up now. Okay, so do you don't really have an answer, though, for why people in TV shows don't wear belts? No, I mean, I, I, I don't, because it's, it's not, it's not like it's a, a culture thing, right? I mean, it's, I but, mean, it's been this way forever. They've been doing this in TV shows since TV's been invented, right? You didn't even notice it, so how can you even say that? Well, no, I was asking you. Like, I, I don't know. Well, then ask me in a form of a question, not in a statement. I mean, do, do you know? Are, are you like, do you watch a TV show and purposely look at people's waist plans? No, but I just notice it. It just jumps out me that they don't have a belt. And people don't generally wear jeans without a belt. Looks stupid. It, it does look stupid. It does. Even I wear a belt with my blue jeans. All right, my size 40-inch hair. 46-inch waist blue jeans, and I wear a belt. <laughs> are you really rocking 46s? No. What are you I rocking? Mean, listen, what are you rocking? Uh, th- 38s. That's not true. It is that's, true. That's not true, because I rock 34s, and you are significantly larger than I am. Oh, no. I'm a pear. I got a little waist. That is true. You are pear-shaped. I forgot about that. <laughs> you're the, which, you're which, the only man who could walk and do like a tailor, and the tailor would just go... Can't help you, man. Can't help you. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I've I've actually done that a couple of times where I have to get things. I'm that guy where like they have to special order stuff because I'm just so awkwardly shaped. <laughs> like, but I mean, I I always kind of get a backwards compliment to where they're like, "Oh, it's just your upper half that's that's really large." I'm like, "Oh, well, okay, that's I, good." I guess I, that's good. Uh, let me ask you this question. How well, as a percentage, would you say that you know most people? Like the people in your life, how well would you know, and give me a percentage, your friends, close friends, and family members? Like, well, like my immediate family or like my extended family let's, as well? Let's go immediate family because I honestly can't even name all of my cousins and I think I have 10 of them. <laughs> uh, uh, I 
I'd, I'd probably I'd probably give me a good eighty uh, percent. Yeah, it's a lie. You do not know. That is not okay. I was gonna go friends. You know them, maybe fifty percent, maybe close friends, maybe sixty five, family, maybe eighty percent. That that's as high as I would be willing to go. I don't I don't think that people know other people nearly as well as they think that they do. Uh, I mean, you could be right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still, if, if I have to bust mine down, I'm still going to give me above 65% all the way around. I disagree. I mean, I know you very well, and you've said many things on this podcast that, that have just come out of absolute left field and made me question if I know who you are at all. That's what Long John Silvers pays me to say, so that's what I say. Shout out to LJS. Long John Silvers. They've been avoiding us a little bit lately. I don't appreciate that. Well, you know, when you shut down 40 restaurants, what what do you expect? Yeah. I guess they're preoccupied (laughs) trying to stay in business, apparently. I I have a question for you. Is this your segment, or is this what are you doing? No, that's just I have a question. Okay, all right, all right. And we kind of talked about this a few few podcasts ago. Then why are we talking about it again? Because it's it's a different question based upon that conversation we had. Okay. 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 So, you know, you said like in Arizona, you obviously don't really have seasons. You have one season that's, that's super hot, right? No. That's what, that's what you said. You that's said not that what I better. said because that's not true. We have summer is super hot and summer is not as the same as everybody else's summer because right now it's 115 degrees. We have seasons in winter. It's probably like in the 50s and 60s. That's just an incorrect statement. You weren't listening. Well... Now you sound like my wife. Either way, my question is, how do you feel about people who are outside in the hot weather and all they do is say, man, it's so hot out here. It's so hot. It's so hot. I can't wait for it to be winter again. I dislike them. (laughs) Like, I'm talking about the person that is purposely outside for no real reason. Like, they're just out there. Uh, not working, not just basking you know, not, in the heat. Yeah, but well, then you can't they, complain they about it. it. A point, they make it a point to to complain. You can't go to a buffet and complain about being full. Like you know what you signed up for. I agree. It's like getting into a swimming pool and uh, you know not wanting to be splashed. No, you know I wasn't a real real big splasher. I was just a fat cannonball kid. Yeah, you do have a good cannonball shape. I would imagine the pear shape with your skinnier legs entering and then your body gradually getting better as the reverse <laughs> pair, you would be an excellent cannonballer. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think I've ever done it for, uh, you know, a judged competition, but uh, maybe that's what we should have. You, this a could be your competition. This could be your calling, and you don't even know it. Shit, they uh, they have a hot dog eating contest, right? So maybe they, I'm sure they have a cannonball contest somewhere. You know what they kind of contest they should have? They should have an eating contest followed immediately after by a swimming contest. Because you know how they used to always say, like, wait 30 minutes before going in the water? They should have yeah. an eating contest and then immediately a swimming contest and just see what happens. Did, did you ever Did you ever listen to that rule? No. Nobody's ever listened to that rule. I, I mean, I would try. What's the? I've never understood that, that idea. Like when any kind they have this recommendation or specifications, like wait 30 minutes. So you're fucked at 29, but fine at 31? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get it. Like, 
I, I actually want to do the research and find out where that came from because that person should get punched in the face. That person should be punched in the face. Unless it's a woman, then we we can figure out something else. Um, do you do you have do you have your segment? Are you ready? I want to hear it. I thought you promised us music last time. I'm sure you don't have it. Well, I I do not have the music, unfortunately. Okay. I I don't necessarily have the means right now to have the music, but I'd be very happy to to give you some you know a personal touch again if you want. Yeah, but do it without using your mouth. Uh, okay. Let me let me see what I. Can. What I have around here. Hold on. All right, we're just going to wing this here. Okay, okay. That is your best one yet. That was easily... I was actually getting hyped. That is your best one yet. (laughs) Uh, All right, so the first one's pretty simple. On a hot day, are you going to have a cold drink in terms of like a liquor or a beer? Are you going with like a cold lemonade? Oh, liquor or beer? Lemonade is the stupidest thing we've ever invented as a society. Is pink lemonade even dumber than? Yeah, of course it is. It's disgusting. <laughs> Nobody actually like went, oh, lemonade, give me some of that. Yeah, that's gross. Wow. You know how earlier you said that, uh, you know, you feel like you don't know someone that well? I, I, I didn't know you hated lemonade so much i just don't understand it because it's not as good as liquor and it's not as good as water it's just a pointless beverage i'm gonna go ahead and say that any kind of juice is just worthless like get rid of all the juice we don't need any juice we need water we need pop we need alcohol and that's it get rid of everything else wow that's a pretty bold statement Um, oh who wants some blueberry juice you want some of that no i mean Juice has its place, though. No, juice is totally worthless. It's a worthless food group. I I think that's actually a good Twitter poll for some time later on this week. Is juice, ju- like if you if you had to get rid of juice or pop, or keep one, which one would you? It's not even a competition. Pop destroys it. Pro- probably, but I, I'm curious. I I think I would rather get rid of pop and keep juice. I love juice. What kind of juice are we talking about? The only juice that I'll give you is an acceptable juice. Is apple juice until the age of eight, and then orange juice after the age of sixty-five? Uh, I mean, cranberry juice is really good. No, it's uh, not. Great. <laughs> All right. Anyways, uh, moving on. Number two: uh, waterbed or a regular mattress? That's a stupid question. <laughs> Why? Because everybody's going to go with a regular mattress. Who the fuck wants a waterbed? Like, that's you know, cool so, when you're, like, 12 years old and you think it's going to be a great time. You show me a kid with a waterbed, and I guarantee you that person is a, is an overweight loser. <laughs> I mean, listen, I had a waterbed till I was, like, 16. <laughs> I tell you what, you've never seen Papa Shaw run so fast as to when I was playing darts up against my waterbed, and I popped a few holes in that waterbed. Honestly, if you were my son and I saw that, I would just throw you out of the house. (laughs) Just throw you out of the house right then and there. I would take you to a fire station, and you're on your own. He was not very happy. Um, And then in honor of uh, the Apollo 11 mission, uh, I'm curious to know, would you rather land on the moon or travel to the center of the Earth? Oh, land on the moon. How about you? Yeah, I, I agree. I guess I though I I would like to like that would be pretty cool to go to the center of the earth. Be really hot. Well, you'd be in a protective space shuttle or something. Well, a space, space shuttle. shuttle going 
No, the space shuttle does not go underground. The space shuttle would go into space, hence the name space shuttle. But you know, I think he knew where I was going, or trying to at least. Well, we would like to assume, but I don't think that we can. Um, look, I think we need to make changes to your next segment, and this is okay. going to be this is going to be your big test, okay? Because you've been doing a lot of people, doing a lot of shout-outs, but it might drag a little bit. So we might narrow it down to one unless you can really impress me with some new music made only with your right hand starting now. (laughs) This is so much better. This is, it's fire. I literally, if you're curious to know how I did that, I have like a baseball and I was just going like on a kitchen counter to like the cabinets back to like a uh, cardboard box. Wait, tell me the truth right now. Are you sweating after that? No, I am not. However, if you want to laugh at me, it's like a hundred degrees here in where I'm at and I walked outside earlier and I started sweating by just walking. Well, yeah, I mean, if it's 100 degrees, I don't, I don't I don't take anything away from you for that. Okay, well, fair enough. But no, I am not sweating currently. Check, did you check lower back? <laughs> uh, yeah, lower back's good. Lower oh. back's good. Okay. Private region's good. We're good. All right. So, Have you ever put so, deodorant on anywhere else other than your armpits? Yes. Not <laughs> you? No. Oh. <laughs> Where did you I put know, it? I, Where did I you put it? I do it frequently, actually. Where? Uh, I mean, <laughs> I mean, imagine one area. That's one. You put sometimes de- I'll do the lower back. Sometimes I'll do the inner thighs. It all depends. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I should have just admitted that out loud. I feel like that's going to come back to haunt me. I look. I don't know. I mean, you could either be like you are either top tapped into some secret world. I don't know anything about. Or you're the only person who puts deodorant on the the twig and berries to. Why would you? I mean, I mean, it's not like it's a regular occurrence. However, you know, if you're gonna be outside, like at a, a sporting event or something, you know, you're gonna sweat. Like, I don't want to be that one guy there. That like the person in front of me is like, where are their fish and chips at around here? I don't know what that means, but um, do you, <laughs> you do you do you spray on or do you? You roll it on there. Uh, usually uh, some kind of spray. Okay. I'm not taking like the right guard stick and ru- rubbing it up and down my nuts. <laughs> Do you worry about getting it in the hole when you spray it? Either hole, really. I mean, there's two there. No, you take preventative measures to make sure that it doesn't go into any holes. What do you do? Do you put like, do you just hold your hand over it or do you use like a tissue or a paper towel? You realize no one cares, right? No, I'm very interested in this. You just cover it with one of your with a hand directly over. Like, do you specifically like oh put? My a, God. Do you put a finger on the hole and then spray, or do you just kind of generally like palm the whole thing? Nah, well, usually just half a hand will work for me. Okay, but you're not specifically like cover the hole like the boat's leaking. I got to plug it up. No, and it's not even really how how. You're over-exaggerating it. It's just a simple, you know, cover, spray, cover, spray. You use the same hand to cover the front as you'd cover the back? (laughs) 
Uh, usually, yes. Okay. That might not be sand. Do you go front first and then back or back and then front? Front, back, thighs, lower back. I start the bottom, work my way up kind of thing. Okay. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> oh, God damn it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so so am I supposed to? Am I giving shout outs? No, you're gonna do everything. We're gonna see how it goes, and then if you screw it up, we're never gonna do it again. Well, that's fair. Well, I'm starting off. I'll make it quick and snappy here. So uh, I crushed you again and on Facebook in our top five, eighty four to sixteen. That was really bad. Uh, I didn't think it would be that bad. You got a lot of hate for the hot dogs, which. I love hot dogs. However, I would never include them as their own separate meat in a top five of meats ever. So, uh, you know, Dave Blanks uh, gave you some shit. Uh, Paul Riggs says that hot dogs aren't even meats, which I can't disagree with him on that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we got some love all around the board. Uh, someone, or I should say across social media, Pammy Lala says that she loves us. Not even sure how she found us uh, in the podcast world, but that she loves us. So thank you, Pammy. Appreciate that. Um, and then on Twitter, which I thought was was funny, was uh, we put up a top five as to, um, uh, and it's going to be our top five, but our favorite fast food burgers. And surprisingly, so far, what's leading the way with like 40% is uh, everyone saying something else. Other than like the Whopper, the Baconator, and the Big Mac, so yeah, curious to know what that something else is. Well, I mean, there's too many options. Probably, I understand that a little bit. I, I think Pammy Lala maybe she might be like a really good poker player. I think for some reason, I have this feeling she can let us know if she still listens. I think she does. Pammy, let us know if you're still a good poker player. Um, are 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 you ready for? Are you ready for our top five? Yeah, let's do it. I'm, yeah, I, I'm setting myself up here, but I'm, I'm excited for this top five. Ooh, I feel like I'm setting myself up even worse. Like I'm guaranteeing a loss. For people who don't know, um, every Monday after the episode airs, so the episode airs on Wednesday, and then the Monday after that, we put up a poll on our Facebook, Profoundly Pointless Facebook, where you can vote on whose list is better. I've pretty much lost... Boy, a lot of them. I usually generally lose. Um, anyway, that I don't think anyone cares, but we'll just move on. We'd like to hear what you guys think about them yeah. because obviously you're over to the Facebook page. Yeah, there you go. Vote that's for, much. That's vote a, for Nick. He needs it. I have my everyone in my family votes for me. So, and if you didn't know, John has like eight cousins who are also somehow sisters and uncles, which is very confusing. Um, <laughs> so, what we're doing it now? Wait a minute. Let me. Are we doing top five? fast food burgers like the individual kind of burger or are we just doing the general restaurant uh i can do either or i i i went down to the individual burger okay let's just do restaurant but you can name your burger i have a feeling um based on our body mass indexes you may have more of knowledge of fast food burgers than i do <laughs> well my bmi is not 46 for nothing <laughs> it just comes back as grease. <laughs> it just comes back dead. <laughs> dead. <laughs> Sir, you're actually dead right. Anyway, uh, what's your number five? My number five is uh, the Five Guys Burger from, obviously, Five Guys. Okay. I have never eaten there, but I have heard that it's actually really good, and I feel like 
just on reputation alone that that should probably be higher on your list? I don't know. I mean, this is this is a tough list. We've done tough ones. What's beeping? This one's pretty tough. What's beeping in your house? Uh, be the microwave. Be the microwave. Be the microwave. Be the microwave. What was uh, it? That that would have been my elliptical machine, but I'm not <laughs> sure why it was beeping. Because it's just it's, <laughs> it hasn't been heard me talking about body index. <laughs> do you have an elliptical machine? I do. Yes. Do you use it? <laughs> I I do. I, I you know I'm I'm recovering from the torn hamstring. And it's actually, oh, that's uh, right. Actually, it's actually helped considerably. Do you do you go how? Okay, what's your percentage when you go a certain amount of time? What's your percentage going forward? What's your percentage going backwards? I don't, I don't, I don't do backwards. That's probably why you tore your hamstring. Let's have a feeling. <laughs> what's your number five? My number five is just McDonald's regular cheeseburger. Okay, I mean, I think most people would say that. So, are, are you doing the restaurant or the burger? Um, I'm doing. I'm doing the restaurant. I feel like McDonald's has to be in the top five. See, but I don't just base mine based on like one-off, okay, this is absolutely the best. Like I base mine based on convenience and price and all kinds of things. And I, I think a regular McDonald's cheeseburger is actually pretty solid. That's fair. Well, th- this is an all-encompassing list then. I, I, mine's kind of the same way. So I, I think McDonald's should be much higher, but it's your number five. My number four, I have Wendy's. Specifically, the Baconator. Oh, that is a good. I don't eat it enough to feel confident putting it up in my top five, but that 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 is good. I mean, if you get the right person making it, I mean, you'll have a heart attack before you leave the drive-through. I'm going to ask you this question, and anybody who listens, feel feel free to weigh in on this. Do you think that like the cooks at McDonald's or any kind of fast food restaurant give a shit? Like they're back there. I'm gonna I'm gonna really try to make this one good. <laughs> um. I don't want this to come across like I'm dissing fast food workers, but but no, I don't I don't really think they give two shits. Okay, but I mean, a lot of people at their jobs don't give a shit. That's that. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, but specifically, I don't think when like somebody's making a uh, like McDonald's if they're making a cheeseburger, I don't think they go, man, I'm gonna make this one cheeseburger the best cheeseburger this person's had. Like, really try to make. Like really try to put the 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 ketchup on there in just the right proportion, instead of just like blasting I mean, unless, it on unless there. Unless they're you know using special sauce, but we won't get into that. My number four. What's your number four. An extra long cheese coney at Sonic. A coney isn't a hamburger. I'm aware of that, but I feel like it's good enough for me to put it on the list. Oh my god, <laughs> you're gonna get railed. Like you're gonna get ruined on Facebook on Monday. Okay, but answer me this. How is an extra long cheese coney really any different than a hamburger? It's meat in a bun, which is the same thing as a hamburger. It has cheese on it. It's not really any different if you think about it. The only difference is the way that we refer to it. But it's essentially just meat shaped differently in a bun. Eh, I mean, technically you're correct, but it's not a hamburger. We were supposed to be doing the top five fast food burgers, not... A uh, hot dog that pretends to be a hamburger. I felt like it was good enough that I wanted to put it on there. I feel like it deserves some recognition. All right. I mean, and, and listen, that's that's why it's that's why this is America because we all have opinions, even if they're wrong. Right. Um, What's your number three? My number three is McDonald's, uh, the quarter pounder or Big Mac. You know what? 
I should have put quarter pounder. I should have been specific and had quarter pounder higher at number five. Not the regular cheeseburger. I should have had a quarter pounder. But I, I agree with your list. Now that I think okay. of it, maybe three is actually too, too low. Yeah, my, uh, I mean, for, for two and one, I went personal preference, but I wanted to make sure that I included McDonald's and Wendy's on there at some point. My number three is, uh, Burger King. Okay. Uh, the, the Whopper. I had a double cheeseburger one time when I was drunk after the night that I still remember to this day that like, oh, I can think about one of those kind of meals when you like bite into it and it's so good that you can still recall it. Uh, I had one of those just this morning. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, <laughs> What's your number two? I feel like I feel like we're about to get into some, some more specific restaurants now. Some more regional uh, fast well, food. My number two is Culver's, uh, the Butter Burger. Never had it, but I've heard good things. I just drive past it because it's called Culver's. I, you you should stop in. It's delicious. Get you some cheese curds. I don't like the way the yeah. restaurant looks. I guess I never really paid attention to what it looks like. This just reminds me too much of like a country barn. Just, I can keep going. Well, you should be used to that. Weren't you raised in a barn? Yeah. Was, I mean, for a little while, that was a bad experience. It turns out that guy <laughs> wasn't my dad, which is weird. But my, my number my number two is In and Out. Okay, see that that that's like an honorable mention for me, but that that's a good choice. I don't see how you can have In and Out not on a list. If you've had In and Out, I mean, you get the animal style. Ooh, that's pretty good. It is. It's it is delicious. It's I, I don't disagree with you. What's your number two? Oh wait, did you already do number two? Oh, you did. Yeah, What's my your number one? You already kind of said it. My number one is the Whopper from Burger King. What's more iconic, though? Wendy's doesn't... I don't think Wendy's can compete in that area. Is the Whopper more more iconic than the Big Mac? Ooh. Yeah, I... I that's, that's a tough question. That that might have to be a, uh, a social media question. I, I don't know. I'm going to say no because I think McDonald's is more globally known. Then burger and I, I I don't know anything. I can be completely wrong, but so I would probably give the nod to McDonald's. You, can I bore you with a McDonald's fact? You can always bore me. Oh, uh, sounded kind of weird. All right, let's move on. Um, McDonald's when they de- debuted the McPizza actually sh- sh- God actually sold more pizza than any other chain in America. Wait a minute. There was something called the McPizza? Yeah, they had the McPizza. I don't remember it. I never had it, but I just know that they had a McPizza. Anyway. Can I can I tell you a fact, a McDonald's fact? Sure. The McRib does not actually have rib meat. What does it have? No idea, but it's not rib meat. Yeah, I mean, that would probably be prohibitively expensive. Um, my number one is Shake Shack. Ooh. See, another honorable mention. But I was just introduced to Shake Shack... A while ago, didn't crack my top five, but that, that that's that's a good choice. Those are your one and two are very very good. Yeah, I think I might. If I wouldn't have put extra long cheese coney in there, I feel like I would have had a chance to win. Uh, what's in your honorable mention? So uh, Dairy Queen surprisingly has a really good cheeseburger. Wow. Um, let's see what else. I had Shake Shack uh, Wahlburgers. Never had it. 
But the simple fact that it's owned by the Wahlbergs annoys me. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's not. I like. I was trying to see if that's considered fast food, but uh, I'm, I, it is. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. At least we're gonna go with it. Okay. Um. Yeah. That that was it. I mean, you said an out burger, Shake Shack. Oh, White Castle. Yeah, I, is White Castle really known for being really good, or are they just known for having those little burgers, though? I mean, they're known for sliders. I mean, how how good can a slider really get, right? I yeah, mean, but that's but just... yeah that that one would that was actually probably number six for me if I had to like narrow it down. See, that's why I had extra long cheese coney in the list because honestly, after I put McDonald's on there just because they're McDonald's, but after three, it's all kind of the same to me, right? Like Wendy's, Carl's Jr., Hardee's, Steak and Shake, all those other places. It's just like it's the same thing. It really doesn't taste any different. Well, you know, I believe it or not, I try not to eat fast food burgers, even though I do. I try not to after watching that video where someone left out a McDonald's cheeseburger outside and like a year later it was still a McDonald's cheeseburger. What's the most number, highest number of cheeseburgers that you've ever ordered at one sitting? Oh, it's not that many. Probably, uh, probably three. Regular ones or like quarter pounders? Yeah. Yeah, like, like off the dollar menu. Probably oh, like okay. Three cheeseburgers or whatever. How many, wait, did you get fries with it too? How many, how many things of fries? No, never. I, I'm not a big fry guy. But if you're asking me the biggest burger I ever ate, in one sitting, it's probably this two-pound burger I had uh, while on vacation, like eight years ago. That's not really impressive to me. You need to have you need to have a higher number than two pounds. Come on. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. We really love hearing from you guys. We're starting to get a lot more comments in, and we want to kind of continue to feature those on our website and on our social media accounts and on this podcast as well. We are starting as of Thursday the 25th. We are starting our Rewarding Stupidity Contest. What we're going to be doing is basically every week, we're going to ask you guys, what's the dumbest thing that you did this week? Whoever did the dumbest thing, we're going to send you a $10 gift card. So if you want to participate in that, follow us on social media. We're Profoundly Pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We also have the ProfoundlyPointless.com website. We love hearing from you guys. We love seeing the comments. Even if they're bad, they always make us laugh. Coming up in the next couple of episodes, we're going to be talking to an adventure filmmaker, a fighter pilot, a steroid expert, and a tattoo artist. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.